my iPad is dying. <laughs> so forgive me if uh, this doesn't go as smooth. And God has just such perfect timing because yesterday I just had somebody donate theirs to me. And so how funny this is because it just started this morning that it was like bugging out and shutting off and all this stuff. And this one was donated to me several years ago because... I think they got tired of me going through papers. And so I'm really thankful. Like, it's cool. I just didn't get a chance to transfer everything yet. So anyway, I'm back in this one. Let's pray that this doesn't just explode because then I won't have any notes. Okay. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for allowing us to gather here to worship you and to learn more about you. And I pray, God, that you would touch every individual here to be able to listen to what you are instructing them that it is more than just the knowledge that we were going to gain from studying your word, and it's more than just a conviction that we are going to feel, but that it translates into a transformation, a change, so that we are more like you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we often hear of all these things that help us to live longer, healthier lives, but the thing is, all those things change all the time, don't they? all these kind of trends and all what we eat and how we exercise and sleep and rest, all that kind of stuff, it just constantly changes. How many of us grew up in fat-free, low-fat homes? Like your milk was fat-free, low-fat and all. That's it? Awesome. You guys are ahead. I grew up in one of those homes and then saturated fat was really bad. Anybody grew up in the household where saturated fat was really bad? That's it, really? I'm really surprised. Well, and now it's not. And now what's the bad fat that's out there now? Trans, you hear that's trans fat that's bad. And so now you see when Costco carries something, you know that it's arrived, right? So like coconut oil, avocado oil, like it's there. And so things have changed. And then even with exercise, you know, we grew up with like, you know, moderate, extended forms of exercise. That's what's best for you. And we're finding out that, no, that's not the thing for you now. Right now, it's the short, intense. Those are the ones. And so you see CrossFit gyms popping up. You see all these boot camps, all these types of things popping up. And so things are changing all the time for our physical health. And so we know that there are some who care about their physical health more than others. And unfortunately, this is the same for our spiritual health, where some people care about it more than others, and they keep track of it more than others, and they're listening for what helps them more than others. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So we can have everything. Physical health, financial health, emotional, mental health. We can have everything. But what good is it if one's soul is lost for eternity? And yet what we see in the world around us and even with some who profess to be followers of Jesus is this focus on everything else in the world, but yet the spiritual health is just far behind, just lagging behind. It's not really a consideration or a priority. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 34. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
We're in the last chapter of Nehemiah, and in this last chapter, we're reminded to keep our spiritual health in check, and there are a couple of things that are going to help us evaluate that. One of them is trustworthiness, which includes, do we follow through on our commitments? Do we keep our promises? Do we do what we say we're going to do? And the second thing is our priorities. Now let's take a look at this first section this morning, just verses 10 through 14 first, and see how the people in Jerusalem, their spiritual health is doing. But before we get to that, we kind of need a little bit of background. And so let's quickly turn to chapter 10, verse 39, and it reads this. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of God. Keep that in mind. We will not neglect the house of God. Because in chapter 10, they realized how important worship was. They realized that they needed to be intentional in who they appointed to the task to ensure worship was a priority and allocating financial resources to those who worked in the house of God. So you keep chapter 10, verse 39 in mind as we look at chapter 13. When Nehemiah returned from King Artaxerxes and found that the Levites and the singers weren't doing what they were appointed to do. Verse 10, chapter 13. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. Now why did the Levites and the singers flee each to his own field? And it wasn't because the Levites and the singers didn't want to fulfill their ministry. It was because they weren't financially supported in doing the ministry that was appointed to them. And so the people began to disregard the scriptures about giving. And the Levites and the singers had to feed their families. So they went back to the fields to tend to the fields so that they can provide for their families. So Nehemiah saw this neglect of the house of God and he did something about it. Verse 11. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. So Nehemiah, he reproves and he corrects these officials. And then he started putting things back in order, prioritizing things to serve the house of God. Now look at what else he did in verses 12 through 14. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedaiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. So after Nehemiah called out the leadership for not financially supporting those who worked in the ministry, he goes to some of those in the ministry, the priests, the scribes, the Levites, their assistants, and he appointed them back to the work in the ministry, which must have been just a really encouraging thing for them. Because they wanted to serve the house of God, but they just simply couldn't because they weren't provided for. Nehemiah appointed them back to the ministry, and look at this phrase toward the end of verse 13, for they were considered reliable. How encouraging would those words have been to receive those words? Because it wasn't anything that they did that they weren't serving there anymore. It was these officials who weren't obedient to serving God. These were reliable people. And you look back to verse 11, and I gathered them together and set them in their stations. He did this in front of everyone so that everyone could see his acknowledgement of their reliability. 
It was probably discouraging for these folks to go back to their fields, but now they're uplifted with Nehemiah's public support of their ministry. And we all know Nehemiah to be a prayerful person, and that's what he does in verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. And this is a really great model as to how we are to work together here at Regeneration, starting in verse 11. For us to confront one another when we're not serving God, for us to gather and to set people in their stations because we kind of need to reorganize every once in a while and to encourage people to serve. Now, when looking at service, oftentimes we look at things that the world looks at, right? Experience, personality, giftedness. And in ministry, we look at calling. We look at reputation. We look at all these types of things. But what did Nehemiah point out in Nehemiah 13? It wasn't personality, giftedness, calling, reputation. It wasn't any of those things. He pointed out that those who served in the house of God were considered reliable. That they were reliable. Because what good is personality, giftedness, calling, reputation if you aren't reliable? What good is any of that? So when we don't follow through on our commitments, when what we say is not trustworthy, James chapter 5, verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. These people were chosen to serve in the house of God because of their reliability. It wasn't because of gifting. It wasn't because of personality, reputation, or even calling. It was that they were reliable. You could count on them. It's a great model. Is anyone here this morning not following through on their commitments? Are we backtracking on something that we've said? Are we breaking promises in your marriage, in your parenting, your friendships, your job, your education, your ministry calling, your relationship with God? What have you said you'd commit to, but you're not following through on it? How do we know we're spiritually healthy? Do we follow through on our commitments? Are we reliable people? Do we break our promises? Do we follow through on the things that we say we're going to do? Have we prioritized our life to follow God's ways? Let's look at the second example here of our spiritual health. This can be found in verses 15 through 22, but to get some context, we have to look back to chapter 10 again. This time in verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. That's the promise. But why do they make that promise? It goes back to Nehemiah 10 verse 39 again. We will not neglect the house of God. That's why they made this promise. Now let's go forward with Nehemiah 13, verses 15 through 17. Keep, we will not neglect the house of God in the back of your minds. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? 
Now you notice that Nehemiah does not shy away from confrontation. He confronted the officials about the house of God. He confronts the nobles of Judah here. Who here likes confrontation? You like it. Anybody? Yes. We're going to exchange numbers when I have an issue. I'm coming to you. You're going to be my right-hand guy, right? So one person likes confrontation, but who likes to be confronted? Who likes that? A lot of times we talk about confrontation and how we don't like to do it, but who likes to be on the other end of that? Because some people actually like confrontation, like our friend back there. But most people, if not all people, don't like to be confronted. Because who likes to be told that what you're doing is evil? What? What I'm doing is evil? And it's okay to disagree, but when somebody says what you're doing is evil, you're not making friends. I mean, these are like fighting words, right? You're evil. So he rebuked them and then he did something about it. Verses 18 through 22. Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds were of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. That does not mean that he's going to pray for them. That means he's going to throw down, right? So from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Nehemiah meant business. He was not messing around here. Now why were the merchants right outside of Jerusalem? They don't care what the scriptures say. This is for some money. They don't care. It's much like people today... They don't care what the Bible instructs us on how to live today. They have their other priorities. They have their other values and beliefs. They are going to do what they want to do. And so these people outside the gates, they were just looking for this opportunity for business when no one was watching. And so there's nothing wrong with business. But when it becomes a problem is when those priorities are placed before honoring God, before glorifying God, when it takes priority over the promises, the commitments that you've made. So Nehemiah sees this a couple of times, and he's not messing around. He says, do that, and I'm going to pound you. And so for us, at least for me, I'm thinking like, what? That's violence. That's rude. How is that at all godlike? You do this, I'm going to beat you up. He's going to get physically violent over this? I guess it depends on what the stakes are, right? He has history on his side. Jerusalem was crushed because of their disobedience to God before. He doesn't want that to happen again. He doesn't want these people to endure this again. And so it really depends on what the stakes are, right? If you really knew that God would hold you directly responsible and accountable for your leadership, you'd take some things pretty seriously. If you had the history that you don't want repeated again, you'd take it pretty seriously. 
And so some vital signs to our spiritual health. Do we follow through on our commitments? Do we keep our promises? Do we keep our priorities in check? And here's a third example of spiritual vitality or health in Jerusalem or unhealthiness. Verses 23 and 24. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So what's wrong with this? I mean, this sounds really normal, doesn't it? You look at us, you look at the United States, a couple generations ago when our forefathers or whoever were here, they spoke their language, right? Like my relatives spoke Chinese. But on my dad's side, we're sixth generation. My cousins don't speak a lick. They don't know anything about Chinese culture. They don't know anything about those things. This is not about immigration or race or anything like that. This is about the priority of our relationship with God. And these people doing something they said that they would not do. This is something they said they would not do in chapter 10. They signed and sealed this. They took oaths. They put curses upon themselves. If the most intimate relationship in our life is not with God and is not first priority, it affects the rest of our relationships. It affects it all. And so if we have children, it affects them. And speaking the language of Ashdod doesn't mean that we shouldn't learn other languages or doesn't mean that it's not important. Of course it is. Right? Missionaries learn other people's languages to share the gospel with other people. And it's more than just language because we need to learn culture because the Bay Area culture is very different than, say, Southern California culture. It's really different. I don't know if you guys know this. I lived in SoCal for over 25 years, lived over here for, I'm not going to tell you then you know my age, but then it's really different. And so verse 24 addresses the children not knowing the language of Judah, meaning this. It's not that learning another language is bad, it's this. There's no way for them to study the Word of God. Because how are they going to? If you can't speak the language, there's a really high likelihood that you can't read it. I speak Chinese. My kindergartner reads more than I do. She's in Chinese school. It's not like she's a savant or something. Maybe she is. She's pretty bright. But anyway, if you can't speak the language, there's a really high likelihood that you can't read it. So how are these people, these kids, these generations going to learn about God if they can't study it, if they can't read what is written for them? So this pointed out that their relationship and their children's relationship with God, they just were not a priority. And what did Nehemiah do about it? Another disturbing thing. Nehemiah just does a bunch of disturbing things, right? Last week, he threw out Tobias' furniture and just dumped everything. This week, he's going out there threatening people with physical violence. And right here, verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them. He didn't just threaten. He did it this time. And pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Dude. Oh, you see how this is just kind of escalating with Nehemiah here? I mean, what's going on here? But you got to keep this in mind. He loved these people deeply, dearly. And he has history to back him up to saying like, man, if you guys do this again, we're going to lose all of this again. This is all going to be gone again. And out of the commitments that they didn't follow through and all these broken promises and these priorities with their relationship with God just kind of taking a back seat, 
this one was the one that had the most potential to be most spiritually harmful because it affects generation after generation. And there was more than just what happened to Jerusalem in terms of historical context for him to fall back on. He points to one of the wisest people to ever exist on planet Earth. And he points to this history, verses 26 and 27. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him the wisest man to ever live on earth, to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Even Solomon, who had every resource to him in the world, who had every spiritual advisor, spiritual director, therapist, life coach, whatever you want, he had everything around him that you can possibly want. Even he fell because his relationship with God was not his first priority. If Solomon, the wisest man to ever live on the face of the earth, aside from Jesus, fell, led away from God because he lost sight of his priorities, every single person on earth is vulnerable of the same thing. Last week we saw how Eliashib started down this path of compromise, so... You don't follow through on a commitment here. You break a promise there. And traveling down that path, you find that your relationship with God is no longer a first priority. So the decisions made aren't centered around your relationship with God. And this has happened to Solomon. It happened to those in Nehemiah's time. How easily it can happen to just you and me. Not following through on our commitments, breaking promises to God, and going down a road where our relationship with God is not a first priority. Where does much of this stem from? disobedience to his word to his scriptures it's where we find his way to live our life and it doesn't take all that much to be led astray it just takes one influential relationship to lead you away from God just one and to determine one's eternal destiny as well as generations after you it's just one And what appeared to be harmless in letting Tobiah stay in a storeroom earlier in the chapter, later in the chapter, we find out that he becomes part of Sanballat's family. Verse 28, And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. (laughs) Nehemiah's a bad dude. He knows that it doesn't take much to be led astray. And it usually starts out small. It usually starts out as this seemingly harmless, small compromise where you tolerate just kind of the small things and they turn into something bigger like becoming part of your family. Much of the same is happening today where we have more people who are like Eliashib the high priest compromising the scriptures in the name of tolerance over those who are more like Nehemiah, who are upholding the truth of God's word. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verses 14 through 19, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. 
your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Yet how many people who call themselves Christians are leading people astray? Especially Christian leaders because people are trusting to be led well spiritually. But you look at someone like the high priest Eliashib, misleading his family, misleading the church, misleading the community. A lot is happening today that is the same. And it's extremely sad that the church leaders are leading people astray. And I'm not claiming that I have it all together and I'm leading you in the right way. But I'm saying that whatever I tell you, compare it to the Word of God because that's truth. And if that's off, confront me. Rebuke me. I'm not going to like it, but do it. Right? And that's what we need. Because how many of us, or how many people do you know are more like Eliashib and are kind of tooting the horn of tolerance more than that of Nehemiah, that this is just truth, man. I'm just sharing with you guys truth. And unfortunately, I personally know more Eliashibs than I do know of Nehemiahs. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in James chapter 4, verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's just the truth. I'm not the one proclaiming this stuff. I'm just reading what is in your Bible. Yet that's what many Christians attempt to do. We want to befriend the world. And more than that, we want to be part of it. And we claim that it's a missionary thing. Like we want to befriend the world so we can win. That's baloney. That's a bunch of baloney. We care more about tolerance and befriending the world than blessing it and saving it. And this is what Nehemiah does. Sorry, I'm going to beat some people up and pull some hair out. I'm going to chase some people and do that stuff. But I need to save you guys. Because I know through history what happened when guys didn't do this. We were destroyed. And we're busy here wanting to conform to the world. But as Christians, we can't. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the Apostle Paul wrote this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, John wrote, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's the Bible. It's not me personally. If you're looking at me personally, I just want to like, hold hands and sing Kumbaya with everybody. I want to be nice. I do not want to beat anybody up. I do not want to pull people's hair out. I do not want to throw furniture. I don't want to do all those things. But I will. I will. I don't want to. But the gospel of the world is tolerance. That's the gospel of the world. Isn't it? That is the most extreme thing. That's what's valued above all things. We want to tolerate things. The gospel of Jesus Christ is truth. That's what that is. 
how much we need God, how we need to continually look to God, to serve, to pray to, to worship God wholeheartedly. Nehemiah was spiritually healthy. He followed through on his commitments to God. He kept his promises. He prioritized his relationship to God. Nehemiah was a person of prayer who made sure he acted on his commitments to God. You look at how he followed through on his commitments to God. Verses 29 through 31. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his own work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. See, Nehemiah was not interested in a popularity contest. He didn't worry about being a friend to the world. His effort was doing the best he could to bless and save the people. It wasn't to build up tolerance for things of the world, but it was to live in the truth of God's word. He prayed. He equipped the priests to do their ministry. He personally provided the wood offering and first fruits, and he prayed again. He lived by example as a godly follower of the Lord. But let's peel this back a little bit because I want to share with you something that's really discouraging but then encouraging. Nehemiah, yay, hero, reestablishes Jerusalem, means business, does all this stuff. But really, by the end of chapter 13, what did all of this amount to? If you really look at it. Because at this point, he's been a governor of Jerusalem for about 12 years. And at the end of his time, He did everything he could. He did great things. He rebuilt the city, revitalized the city. But really, where does all of this lead to by the end of chapter 13? Really? Failure. Really, right? Didn't he really fail? All the covenants that they made from opening the scriptures in chapter 8 all throughout this point right here in chapter 13, everyone broken. All promises broken broken. That signed, sealed document with all their names on it, and they took an oath and they said, curse us, and put that curse on us. All of it. None of it followed through. All promises broken. A history of priority showing God was second or further down the list. Just kind of showing up right there. This is utter failure. Look back to chapter 10, verse 39. We will not neglect the house of God. Isn't this a joke? You go to Jerusalem today, this is a joke. What happened? Total neglect. This is failure. Amen. Way to end the book, right? That's it. We went through all these months of studying Nehemiah to arrive at this point that despite our best efforts, failure. Yay, good job, Pastor Albert. Good job. This is history, and this is what really happened, and this is the big God that we have, a God of grace. Because this is actually a beautiful story of God's grace. Because despite our best efforts and our good intentions, despite our signed and sealed documents declaring our covenant to God and declaring our promises to God and taking oaths before God like God I love you I'm going to do everything in my life to serve you and everything sin still exists in you and in me it's still there and eventually the follow through doesn't happen eventually the promises that you and I make are broken eventually priorities change in our lives where we scoot God down the scale there 
and we end up just like these people. And this is where history shows, just like Nehemiah was pointing out their history, where God again and again and again comes to touch you and me. That despite all these things, all these failures, all these broken promises, He loves you that much. And He's going to come back again. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, what these people were trying to do, promises, covenants, all this stuff, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. All those laws and oaths and curses, that's flesh. What's the Spirit? Faith. Grace. You're just receiving it by faith. That's the only way you and I are saved. We cannot make enough promises because eventually we break them. We cannot make enough covenants because eventually we break them. We can't prioritize things because eventually we change those priorities. So many spiritual people including Christians, look for righteousness and goodness in themselves. Look at the world. You think you're going to heaven? Yes. Why? This is the number one answer. Because I'm a pretty good person. You are not. You're terrible. You're evil. How well one lives by rules, how one is disciplined to live out their religious vows and promises, they all fail because no one can do it. No one can do it. No one throughout human history is good except for one, Jesus. That's it. That is it. And from the beginning of human history to the present day, it's the same story of people who are willing and desiring to live for God, who want to be pleasing to God, who want to be good people, but they can't. We are incapable of following through in our commitments to God. We are incapable of the promises that we make. We are incapable of continually prioritizing our relationship with Him above everything else. And if we were capable of all of that or even one of those things, Jesus' death on the cross is an absurdity. Why would we need that? It's unnecessary. It would be unnecessary if we could keep our own commitments and our promises and prioritize things with God. His death would be completely unnecessary. But it's all God's grace. Him sending His Son is all God's grace. Knowing that we can't earn our way to God or to godliness, but only by trusting in Him. Trusting in Jesus and who He is and what He has done for us. That is the only way. And Nehemiah shows us this is all the grace of God. You can look like a victorious guy all the way. Cities built, walls built, everything's established. People reading the word, people recommitting, people writing covenants sealed, all this stuff, and they break them. But that doesn't mean that's the end of God's story. His grace. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Nehemiah. Thank you for showing us so much through your word, Lord. I pray, God, that people are able to absorb your grace and your love for them. 
Thank God this was not a call to a further legalism for them to kind of write a contract out between you and them because they won't keep it. We won't keep it. And so God, may your grace saturate our lives. May we live in that and acknowledge that. In Jesus' name, amen.